Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, so I've got a question for you. What comes to mind when you hear the word revival? Like, think about that. Revival. Like, what do you think of? Think about what, what comes to mind when you think of revival. There's things that may come to mind. You might think miracles, right? You might think of, like, God moving in power, lots of people coming to Christ, surrendering to Christ, making decisions to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Maybe churches that are packed out and overflowing, right? Standing room only with people just wanting to hear about Jesus, learn more. Is that, maybe that's what comes to mind when you think of revival. Maybe you've not really even thought about it. Maybe you just hear, maybe you just think like crazy people in tents, right? Not in tents people, but people in actual tents. That's like been a thing um, that are also in tents people. So like, is that revival? Is that the stuff that characterizes revival? So the idea of the word itself is that someone has come to the verge of death, or even death maybe, and that they've been revived. So revival is when God's people, it's a reference to how like, the church comes to life. That's the idea. So the question then is, what would it look like for the church to come to life in Virginia Beach? What does that look like? Look like a bunch of tents everywhere? Maybe. I don't know. Has it happened before? Is it happening now? Could it happen? Is it even a possibility? And what does that look like? So throughout, throughout history, um, in, in many different regions across the world and in America, there have been powerful movements of God that have been termed revivals or renewal movements. And I'm talking throughout history, we see this. They often look very different, though. Some happen on a huge, even global scale, right? Intercontinental scale, like the Great Awakenings of the 18th century. It happened in America and in Britain. Others were more localized that still had very massive, even global impacts with just even a few people, like the Moravian movement in the early 1700s that commissioned missionaries all over the world, some even selling themselves into slavery, to reach people with the gospel, and then that in turn played this crucial role even in the Great Awakenings that I mentioned earlier. And so I've been around sort of what many might call church culture for a long time now, and I've seen um, a lot that many would put in the category of massive revival. I've seen it. been a part of it. Praise God for it. I've seen healings. I'm, talking, I'm not talking like, oh, my foot grew. How can you tell? I don't know, right? I'm talking about like, you are going to die and you didn't, and the doctors don't know why. Right after we prayed. It's like, I know why. We've seen this stuff. I've seen that multiple times. I've seen, guys, listen, I've seen thousands upon thousands of people weekly, tearfully making decisions to follow Jesus. Was that revival? Is that what revival looks like? Maybe. Years ago, many years ago, I moved to New York City to help a friend plant a church. We started with 40 people in an apartment. Within a few months after that, we were packing out massive theaters 
in Manhattan with standing room only. Nine services every Sunday. Nine. Sun up to sundown, essentially. We'd do half of the service in one venue on one side of the city and then pack everything up and go to another venue on the other side of the city. New York City. People would line up on the sidewalk just to get in. That line stretched around four blocks or, or four lines deep, four rows deep all the way around the block. In the middle of Manhattan, just to get into each service. And each week, a thousand people would make a decision to follow Jesus for the, often for the first time. And yet most of them, if not all of them, really had no idea who he was, but they wanted to. Their hand was up. They wanted to know him. It was exciting, and yet it also kept me up at night. Here's why. I'd come home after talking and praying with as many people as I could. I'd try to connect with them throughout the week. I'd try to talk to them and talk to them about the Bible and what this looks like. And, 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 but it was like a drop in the bucket. I was commissioned then to come up with a plan to follow up with everyone. And so I researched and I read and I prayed and I planned. And, and, and I'm just in my 20s, and, and so God placed this simple pathway on my heart to give people these next steps to, to follow up and to follow through and follow Jesus. And so uh, uh, it was a, a plan for them to not only be engaged, but also embraced and equipped and empowered and encouraged to be the church, to be his hands and feet. But in order to continue engaging people the way that we were, the rest just kind of got dismissed. Well, really, the, the embrace, equip, empower, and encourage part, that ball wasn't just dropped. It was kicked into the corner. Now, I'll say that I watched many people get engaged by the gospel, and I watched the Lord do amazing things, often by taking them to another church where they could be embraced, equipped, empowered, and encouraged to do likewise. Praise God. And I got to see people become disciples who make disciples. But, and, and so again, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the way God used the, that season to build his church and, and to help me see also what the local church is called to be and designed to be. Because I realized that God's plan for making disciples was way more than just a platform for evangelism. His plan for fulfilling the Great Commission is the local church, a church that makes disciples who make disciples. That's what he's called us to. That's what we see in the scriptures. And so way back in my 20s, that's when God began calling me to plant a church, a local church, to see true revival happen. And this is how true revival happens. It happens when the church becomes the church. It happens by being the church, by being the body of Christ upon the earth, by plundering hell and populating heaven, not just Sunday morning through some dude on a platform, but throughout the week through the body of Christ that infiltrates the city. And then we gather together and we praise him and we go, do it again. 
It's when people come alive in Christ. It's when people awaken to the spiritual realities of this world. Not as just an idea, but it's real. And we see it and we get it and become utterly obsessed with knowing Jesus more and loving his people more and more and sharing life in Christ with each other and the city and beyond more and more because we want more and more of him. And we fall deeper in love with what he loves. We share it with those who know him and with those who are far from him. And so sharing this life in deep affection for Jesus matters. Not just some like mechanical script, but a people who've come alive and their lives and their words are the corroborating testimony to their hunger and their thirst for more of Jesus. All because they've tasted and seen and they're hungry. More of his goodness, more of his kingdom. You see, true obedience is always from the heart. Always. It's a heart thing. It's the overflow of deep affections for Jesus, not just as Savior, but also as King. And not just as King, but also Savior. That's what happens when the church becomes the church. This is what revival looks like. And I believe that God is reviving his church. I believe he's reviving his church in our society right now. You might be like, that's crazy. That's, I mean, I'm sticky because there's like probably a party thrown here and they're spilling wine and beer all over. Like that's, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, now you guys are going to pay attention to that the whole time. We're going to wipe my... Do the basketball thing. No. Um, some of you basketball players know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. Like, yes, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I'm not disagreeing that, 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 that there is a, a, a... So many people are rejecting Jesus. So many people are deconstructing their faith. There's so much scandal, and the morality of society seems to be in like a free fall. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And so I'm not disagreeing with any of that. In fact, I'm more aware of that than I actually want to be. And you'd be surprised at just how aware I have been of that over the years. But at the same time, I've seen and experienced the supernatural outpouring of God's grace upon his people. I've seen the line between true, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, spirit-filled Christianity get drawn in the sand And I've seen the counterfeit religions of this world get exposed, and I've seen God's grace dumped out on his people in spirit and in truth, and he's calling them away from that man-made, self-exalting religion and into true relationship with Jesus as their Savior and their King. And so I believe that he's just getting started. So the question really is, do you want to be a part of it? Oftentimes, we get so caught up in our like, man, the world, nah, 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 that it just makes us, that's self-exalting. Because what you're saying is, I'm so much better than them. Right? So what this is about is about looking at Jesus and beholding him and saying, God, you care about this more than I do. I just want to be a part of it. Let me in. So throughout the Old Testament, I want you to see something. There is this theme of God's people hungering and thirsting for more of God. The question is, do you want to be a part of it? Are you hungry? 
Are you thirsty? Well, look at this. The Psalms especially articulate this deep longing for more of him. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. His presence. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 143.6, I stretch out my hands to you. Get the image. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Selah, which means pause and pray. Get that in you. That's what this is. That's, it's a surrender, it's a reaching, it's a grasping, it's a hunger, it's a thirst. That's what this is. Do you hunger and thirst for God? Do you have an appetite for him? Or have you feasted on the junk food of this world and your own self-righteousness for so long that you're fat and lethargic and have no taste for what you were truly designed for? That's what happens when you eat a bunch of candy, right? You have no taste for the meat. So this morning and throughout this series, I hope to whet your appetites. Our new series is called Hunger and Thirst. And I hope this morning and throughout the series to whet your appetite for the living God, to hunger and thirst for him and for more and more of him. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says this. God declares through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's like a pot with holes in it, just trying to drink, and it's like, this isn't working. So the first evil they committed was to forsake the Lord, and the second was to try and replace him. And so they don't have an appetite for him anymore. Even though they get no real satisfaction from the junk food idols of self-gratification they've run to, and then, and then, and then Jesus shows up. And he says things like, John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. By who? The righteous one. Jesus. Revelation 7, verse 16 through 7, it paints a picture of eternity with Jesus who is our ultimate hope? And he says this, it, it, it says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall strike, shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Picture being in the desert, famished, parched land. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Are you hungry for that? Are you thirsty? Do you long for more of Jesus? So this morning we're going to begin our series with a sacred celebration that many don't really associate all the time with hunger and thirst for Jesus. But that's exactly what it is. And this morning we're going to talk about baptism. And, and, and I want to show you that baptism isn't just a religious ritual that we do. It's an outward proclamation and demonstration of diving into Jesus. Like you've been walking through the desert and you're like, oasis. Full immersion into the love of God in Christ who is your life. Like diving into the fresh waters of the river Jordan after a lifetime of wandering in the desert. And then coming up revived, refreshed, renewed like a resurrection filled with his presence and his purpose. So we're not just going to talk about baptism. We're going to celebrate it. So this afternoon at 2.30, say 2.30. We're going to gather together on the beach at 58th Street. Say 58th Street. On those hot, dry sands at the edge of the water. And we're going to dunk our baptism candidates into the ocean of God's love for them in Christ. But before we do, we're going to ask each of them two very simple questions. The first, do you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And the second, will you go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then we'll spend a little time praying over each person and then we're going to wade into the water. We're going to baptize them or immerse them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to talk a bit about what baptism is and what it means. And so as I do, God may be calling you to be baptized today, even today, and maybe just in the coming weeks. And so either way, if that's you, I want to invite you to come talk with me after the service, okay? Now, like all things sacred, baptism is both simple and profoundly deep. But that doesn't mean that it's complicated, okay? Simply put, baptism is, and I've got it on the screen for you, simply put, baptism is the public proclamation of your inward faith in what Jesus has done for you. Say done. A simple way of putting this is, four words, Jesus in my place. We talk about that this morning. See, this is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life with God the Father in the sonship that he's purchased for you. And he fills you with the Spirit of God, not just one day when you die, but the moment you receive him. And so that eternal life doesn't just start one day when you die, it starts the moment you receive him by faith. And he wraps you in his arm and he transforms you and he calls you and he commissions you. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. We talk about this one a lot. Jesus came to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Also, in Acts 2, not long after Jesus gave his disciples this great commission, they find themselves surrounded by a crowd of people, and they're hungry and they're thirsty for the grace of God. 
the people, they don't even know him. They don't know much about it, but they're hungry. They're thirsty. They're like, I want what you have. I see something different. I'm in. What is going on? And then and, and Peter, one of the disciples, a man who had recently screwed up royally, but he's just been restored by the grace of God, stands up with the security and confidence of a son of the Most High King, and he declares this powerful message of God's grace to all the people. And then in Acts 2, verse 37 through 38, it says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they're hungry for God. They're thirsty for his presence. They long to know him as the disciples knew him. And so Peter answers saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 2, verse 41 through 42, it goes on to say this. So those who received his word were baptized. They were immersed. That's what that word means. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a whole lot of baptism. Right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which uh, we have as the word of God, and the fellowship, which is the church, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so the first step is to turn toward Jesus and away from sin, to receive him as the king of your heart and the Lord of your life and savior of your soul, and to do that by faith. And then the next step is to publicly demonstrate that through baptism. That's what it says. So I want to show you that baptism this morning is not just a demonstration of salvation. It's also a reception of your commission into ministry. That doesn't mean you're becoming a pastor, but it does mean you're becoming an ambassador or a representative, a representative of Christ together with his church. It's part of the implications of baptism. We're going to talk about that this morning. That's why we ask two questions. The first question is, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And then that second question, which is regarding, so the first is about his substitution and salvation. The second is about your commission. Do, will you go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do? Right? One is substitution, the other is about commission. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at Matthew 3 and 4, and we're going to let the baptism of Jesus himself teach us about what baptism is and what it means for our lives today. And what we see is that baptism isn't just the public proclamation that I've received by faith, Jesus in my place, it's also the proclamation that I have received my commission from him as king. So it's the outward declaration that you are committed to him as Lord. You're joining his people. You are now a part of that covenant people. But that declaration must be the direct response of a heart that has received his commitment first to you as Savior. That's why we ask those two questions in that order. And you need to realize that our flesh is constantly trying to put that second question in front of the first. Constantly. Our self-centered desire to be good enough is relentlessly trying to prove that we will go where he asks us to go and do what he asks us to do in order to show that we have what it takes in ourselves. That we are worthy of his love. And if you fail at that, it must mean you're not worthy of his love. See the trick? 
Then we, if we can do it, then we'll be enough. Then we'll be accepted. Then God will be pleased with us and people will be impressed with us. That's when your relationship with God becomes more about what I can do than what he has done. Say done. Prayer, when that happens, prayer becomes a duty rather than a refuge. And worship becomes an obligation rather than an opportunity. Risen Church, that's called do-do religion. Take that one in. That's do-do religion. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. There's a reason why that is the fundamental characteristic for every false religion in the entire world. Hear me. This is not something that we ever graduate from. If you're like, well, I don't struggle with that. The human heart is a factory of self-righteousness, which is why we have to keep our eyes on Jesus constantly. It's almost like he wants us to live in this intimate relationship with him or something. Right? That's what it's about. This isn't a given that we move on from or grow out of. In this world, our vigilance must be given to being totally dependent upon him for absolutely everything we are and all that we do. We have to be intentional in reminding ourselves that it's not about what we can or cannot do. It's about responding to what he's already done for us in Christ Jesus. Everything else just turns into do-do religion. So this morning, I'm going to hone in on the first and most fundamental question that we've got to put first, always, and you never move away from. Do you believe that Jesus has done everything, say everything, everything to save you. The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus in my place. So let's walk through Matthew 3 verse 11 through 4 2 and this is what I want to show you. I want to show you how everything you are called to do is simply a response of worship to what's already been done for you in Christ. Jesus in my place. Say that again. Everything you are called to do is simply a response of worship to what's already been done for you in Christ. Jesus in my place. That's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. So my hope this morning is that the Holy Spirit will expel that do-do religion with the done-done gospel of Jesus Christ. Only then, listen to me, only then will you truly be able to respond in true obedience to go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do. When it's a response. So turn with me to Matthew 3, verse 11, and let's walk through this passage, and I want to point out three things that we demonstrate through baptism. The first one is, I am immersed into Christ's life. Jesus in my place. The second, I am immersed into Christ's death. Jesus in my place. I am, and the third is, I am immersed into Christ's resurrection. Jesus in my place. It's almost as if this is all about Jesus or something. And then we'll, you'll, we'll also see that we're immersed into his mission as well. And we'll talk about that some more next week. Okay, Matthew 3. We're introduced to, in Matthew 3, we're introduced to a desert-dwelling man named John. You may know him as John the Baptist. He's baptizing massive crowds in the Jordan River. And he's saying, Matthew 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Which means that they're showing a desire to be clean, right? 
They're turning away from sin. They're turning toward God. He's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. But it's a clear indication here that all of this is just preparation for what was coming or who was coming. This was all simply an act of turning away from the junk food of the world and wetting the appetites of their souls for the only one who could really and truly satisfy. Listen to John's next words here. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. So it's not about the guy that baptizes you. It's about the one you're being baptized into. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That sounds intense. So John's baptism was about turning away from sin, but the baptism of Christ would be about the Holy Spirit. The breath of life, new life, resurrection life. It would be an immersion into the very presence of God himself. A changing from the inside out would be demonstrated through this baptism. But to receive that baptism means first turning away from the junk food sin of this world. Again, John the Baptist was wetting their appetites for Jesus, who is the bread of life. Okay? Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his flesh threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, Jesus is looking at the heart, the true heart, not just the outward appearance, but the true heart that has received him by faith. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I, I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So John's confused here. He's been preparing the way for Jesus. He knows who this is. And now Jesus is asking John to baptize him? And John's like, wait, what? This is all about you. I should be baptized by you. I must decrease and you must increase. That's, that's John the Baptist. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Because when Jesus is like, trust me, you trust him, right? Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what's going on here? First of all, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Like, I, I thought baptism was about repentance of sin, right? But Jesus doesn't have any sin, so why does he need to be baptized? The simple answer is, Jesus is taking his place in our place. Follow me. This is how Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And this is how he's going to finish his earthly ministry. He didn't need to be baptized any more than he needed to be crucified. He was perfect. And he was in perfect relationship with God the Father in this perfect father-son relationship. But he longed to bring us into his sonship with the Father. What? This was and is his mission. And he accomplished it by entering, entering into our circumstance, taking on our sin, and, and, and he takes on the grave that our sin deserves, and he left that sin in the depths of Sheol or the abyss where it belongs. By breaking the grip of death, hell, and the grave, he's resurrected, and he does it on behalf of all who trust in him and what he did as Savior and Lord. 
This is all on display through baptism. All of it. Again, this is how Jesus began his earthly ministry, and it's how he finished his earthly ministry. It's a picture of the cross and resurrection. And so the invitation of baptism is to receive what Jesus has done for you. It's the invitation to receive the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ by faith. Because sin, because of sin, we're all going into the grave one way or another. You guys thought about that? If you haven't, you should. Because of sin, everybody is going into that grave. Unless Jesus comes back between now and the time you die, you're going in the grave. But the only way out of the grave is through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. Now again, baptism does not save you. Say it again. Baptism does not save you. Baptism, contrary to popular belief, does not wash away your sins. Only faith in Christ alone saves you. But baptism is a command that Jesus has himself given us. And so does that mean that if you're not baptized, you're not saved? No. Remember the thief on the cross in Luke 23? Right? They're all dying, and the man confesses that he deserves to be there. But Jesus does not deserve to be there. And so he then turns to Jesus as they're all dying, hanging on the cross, and he looks at him and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's dying, and he confesses, I deserve this. He confesses his sin, and he looks at Jesus, and he places his faith and his hope in Christ the King. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's putting his faith in him. It's as simple. The dude didn't have strong doctrine. All he knew is this is Jesus, and he is who he says he is, and I'm in. Jesus looks at him in this powerful moment of victory right in the face of death. This is like a smack in the face of Satan. Satan's laughing, and Jesus is like, watch this. Right on the cross, he looks at him, and he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Said it on the cross. He didn't say, guys, time out. Somebody get some water. Take him down. Somebody find a pool, right? Blow up the hot tub, let's make it, you know, that's not what he does. So we see here in Matthew 3 is that Jesus is taking his place in our place through his baptism. So the first thing I want you to see here is that we're baptized into, the first thing that we're baptized into is the life of Christ, right? So number one, I am immersed into the life of Christ. That's what's being demonstrated through baptism. So let's drop back a bit. I'm going to give you some context, okay? So lean in, sit back, take notes if you can, all right? And follow this, because this is awesome. I'm going to drop back, and I'm going to give you some context for Matthew 3. A lot of people don't realize that Matthew is retelling the Exodus story. It's an Old Testament book about God saving his people, but replacing, he, he's in this a Gospel of Matthew, he's retelling the Exodus story, but he's replacing the life of God's covenant people with the life of Jesus. Watch this. In other words, Matthew is blatantly showing us how Jesus lived the life that Israel could not and did not live. See, the story of Israel in the Old Testament is that God befriended a man named Abraham, and he promised and to bless his family and his offspring to be a blessing to the entire world. He said he would save the whole world through them and through their offspring. He's talking about Jesus. Then his family has to flee down into Egypt where they're enslaved. But then God delivers them from their slavery and rescues them through the waters of the Red Sea. 
After they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, God then takes them through the desert to Mount Sinai, where he gives them his commandments. And from there, they travel onwards toward the promised land and their inheritance. So the thing is, is that they did a horrible job all along the way. They're constantly grumbling. They're constantly sinning. They're constantly turning away from God. They're constantly talking about going back to slavery in Egypt. And Matthew here is showing us how Jesus lived it all out perfectly. The Gospel of Matthew, watch this, it begins in chapter 1 by showing that Jesus was the direct descendant of Abraham. Then Matthew 2 tells us how just after Jesus was born, he and his family had to flee down into Egypt. And then in Matthew 3, Jesus shows up. He's come back from Egypt, and he shows up on the border of the desert and the promised land, being baptized in the Jordan River. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God to be tempted in the desert for 40 days, similar to how Israel was tempted in the desert for 40 years. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus takes his disciples to a spot in the wilderness and he sits down on a mountainside and he gives his famous sermon on the mountain. He says things like this, you've heard it said this, but now I say this. A lot like the way God gave the Ten Commandments to his people at Mount Sinai. And the rest of Matthew then is just this journey, his journey to the cross and resurrection and his inheritance. Just as, just as Israel journeyed towards their inheritance in Exodus, Paul does the same thing in his letter to the Romans. In, in Romans 4, Paul talks about God's promise to Abraham about inheriting the world. And in Romans 5, Paul sums up how Jesus is the second and better Adam who lived perfectly where Adam and you and I fell short. And then Romans 6, Paul talks about how once we were slaves to sin, but now we've come through the waters of baptism out of slavery and into sonship. Like Israel through the Red Sea. And we've died to that sin and that slavery, and now we're learning how to walk as sons, not slaves. And then Romans 7 even talks about receiving the law, like at Sinai. And he's confounded by it because he can't live up to it. This is where Paul, the Apostle Paul, says things like how he, how he, he does the things. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. He cries out in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? And then, in Romans 8, we have the answer. And the answer to the question of who is Jesus. And the answer to the question of how is Jesus in my place. Romans 8.1 declares, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say, Jesus in my place. And Romans 8 launches then into this description of a life led by the Spirit of God as we journey towards our ultimate inheritance. How cool is the Bible? It's alive and it's amazing. Now, I know that that's a lot. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I, I get that that's a lot. But here's the simple point I want you to get is that the scriptures are pointing to this reality, that Jesus lived the life Adam couldn't live. He lived the life Israel couldn't live. And he lived the life you and I couldn't and can't live. 
And so our baptism isn't just about the cleansing of sin. It's about proclaiming that we've received by faith Jesus in my place. And so the first thing that we're immersed into is the life of Christ, which leads me to the second thing that we're immersed into. I'm immersed into Christ's death. Galatians 2 verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is why Jesus uses the language of dying to self so often. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way you'll truly hunger and thirst for Jesus is when you turn away from the counterfeit junk foods of this world. And most of that junk food is pointing you to yourself. When you indulge in sin, it ruins your appetite for the true bread of life. Like when you indulge in the expansion of your own little kingdoms for your own little glory, you get bloated and that self-righteousness and spiritual lethargy happens. And you don't make room for the king. And this appetite to, happens to Christians also, okay? Like how often did Israel mope and complain about being set free from Egypt? Some even were talking about going back. Like that's what our flesh does when things get difficult. But the response of grace is, that's not who you are. The response of grace in your king is, I want you to lean in and let me tell you what's true about you. Romans 6 verse 11 says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, that's not who you are. Let it die. Put it away and put on Christ who is your life. Say, Jesus in my place. This is the declaration of total identity change. Baptism is the proclamation to the world that you're leaving that former community and all those old ways, and you're joining a new community and the ways of Jesus. This is really on display. If you've ever been in the countries that are like dealing with persecution, this is really on display there. Man, when, when people come to Christ in places where they're persecuted, baptism gets real. Most of the places, it's totally illegal. Like it's interesting how other religions seem to recognize the significance of baptism often even more than Christians. Baptism's outlawed in India. It's completely outlawed. In places like Indonesia and Muslim countries, it, it can literally cost you your life. And yet the call to baptism remains. And those who are hungry and thirsty do it with smiles on their faces. I'm telling you, it's amazing. Because the call to identify with him in life, death, and resurrection 
remains. Romans 6, verse 4 through 5 says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Which leads me to the third and final thing that we're baptized into, which is Christ's resurrection. I am immersed into Christ's resurrection. I want you to think about this. Jesus has lived his entire life in relative obscurity as a carpenter in Nazareth. We see him when he's an infant, then we see him at 12 years old in the temple. We don't see him again till he's 30 years old, showing up seemingly out of nowhere in Nazareth in the Jordan River. And he kicks off this three-year ministry that culminates in the cross and resurrection at 30 years old right here at his baptism. And so I want you to understand that in rabbinic tradition, you need to see that when a rabbi was commissioned into ministry, it required that two other legitimate figures of authority lay hands on him and publicly declare that this guy is the real deal. He's legitimate. And so I need you to see, I want you to see, that that's what's happening right here in Christ's baptism. That John the Baptist, the man that Jesus himself, the Son of God himself, said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament. John the Baptist lays his hands on Jesus and says, this is the one that I've been talking about. He's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to carry this guy's sandals. And then, this heavens open up. The sky opens and God Almighty lays his hands on Jesus in the form of a dove who represents the, 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 the Holy Spirit. And the Father himself speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Guys, it doesn't get any more legit than that. So I want you to see that if you are in Christ... This is the Father's declaration over you. What? Wait, you? No, that's, that's, that's the Father's declaration over Jesus, not me. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you have trouble with that? Do you have trouble with God saying, you are his beloved Son in whom he's well pleased? Do you have trouble with him putting his hands on you with the Spirit of God and saying, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased she is my beloved. He is my beloved. you have trouble with that? Why? You might say, come on, man, that's a bit radical, right? Like, you're telling me that God the Father declares that statement over me? That God Almighty is looking at me and saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? Like, I don't know about all that. Then you don't know about Jesus. Because this is what he's done for you. And the only reason that you would reject it is because you don't think you deserve it because you're still trying to earn it. Again, that's a doo-doo religious spirit. Here's what I mean. And yes, this is a cheesy illustration, so prepare. But I think it's helpful 
So whenever you're feeling like you're trying to measure up to the expectations of people or God or even yourself, and you find yourself slogging away joylessly and, often, and find you're often failing constantly, that's that doo-doo religion. When you find yourself in that kind of circumstance, I want you to imagine Jaws music playing. Remember that? Dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Jesus paid it all. That's what chases off the enemy. Like the people on the Jersey Shore running from the shark. That's how the enemy runs from the gospel. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain and he washed it white as snow, and now he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved. Only the gospel can get rid of that doo-doo religion. You can't do more to get rid of doo-doo religion. You can't. It's only done through the reality of the cross and resurrection because it truly is finished. Jesus said it was, and it's true. That's why we're receiving by faith that's what, it's what it means to receive Jesus in my place. It's not about what I have to do-do or what I can't do-do. It's all about what's already been done in Christ. Now, you might say, yeah, but if we're not motivated by a fear of failure or, or the pride of achievement, how will we ever try to be any good? That's just the pride-shame spectrum, guys. That's the way this world operates. That is not grace, and it's not how God motivates us. Those good works will all ultimately be in pride, not worship from the heart. Remember those WWJD bracelets? Remember those things? They were popular about 20 years ago. They stood for what would Jesus do? Remember those things? Anybody? Am I the only one? That's all right. Some of you got it. We're, we're tracking. WWJD. This is, you'd wear them around your thing. Whenever you were faced with a decision, it would be like, well, what would Jesus do? They never landed well. Like, I get it. It was a nice reminder of just how far I had to go in my behavior to be like Christ, right? Like, that's what it just reminded me. It didn't really help me much, honestly. It just reminded me of, like, how far away I was from um, who Jesus is, right? So I switched the letters around. I switched them around to WDJD. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do? I started asking, what did Jesus do? And more importantly, what does Jesus deserve? That's different. You know what the answer is? Worship! Does it? So instead of trying to be awesome like Jesus, my life became an offering of worship in response to Jesus. And that's what this Great Commission is all about. That's what true obedience from the heart is all about. It's worship. It's a life of love and good works, not fearful suspicion, striving to be enough and scared to death that someone is going to do or say the wrong thing or that you are going to do or say the wrong thing. Which, by the way, always quenches the spirit who desires his people to unify and step out in secure, confident faith. It's confidence in your identity as his beloved that overflows in obedience to his commission. Not because you're perfect, but because he is, and you're perfectly loved. See, the only way that you're truly going to be able to resist sin and temptation anyway is by first receiving your identity as his beloved. 
I'm going to say that one again. The only way you're truly going to be able to resist sin and temptation in this world is by first receiving your identity as his beloved. Again, what we're witnessing even here in Christ's baptism is a commissioning ceremony into ministry. And if that's what it was for Jesus, how much more is baptism a commissioning ceremony for us? True obedience, victory, life. This is what it looks like to receive your commission, to go where he asks you to go and to do what he asks you to do. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 2, right after Jesus is baptized, this is what it says. Remember, there's no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts for the Bible. This flows right out of his baptism. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, that's funny, that's funny. It, it brought up Matthew 4.1, that's funny. <laughs> I'm not going to read it, it's kind of... <laughs> This is what happens. That's the second time that's happened to me. I'm going to take my watch off. Um, but this is what's taking place right after. It says that then he's led up to be tempted. He's chasing down the devil. We're going to talk about this more next week. And in verse 2 it says, And after, 40, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I hope that whets your appetite a little bit for next week. So we're going to talk more about it next week. But I want you to see here that his obedience is the overflow of his sonship, not the other way around. And I want you to see that the way that we deal with temptation is through the secure identity we have in Christ as his beloved, as those in whom our heavenly father is well pleased. Do you have a hard time receiving that? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. If that's difficult for you to receive, then Christianity is going to be really difficult for you to live out. Because it's all about the overflow and response to his love for us in Christ. Say, Jesus in my place. Now, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've never made a public proclamation of that faith through baptism, then I want to invite you to talk with me after the service. This morning, come talk to me. This is just, guys, this is about surrender. Okay? It's not about whether you have what it takes. or it, it, It's all about trusting in what he has done. It's a statement of faithful surrender to his faithful care and lordship. But if you're not ready to surrender, listen to me. If you're not ready to surrender to him, then I would say don't do it. Baptism is not a fix-all. It's not. It's a declaration of war against the enemy. And if your hope is in yourself, then all you're doing is running into battle with no armor, no weapons, no army, just you against the hordes of hell. It ain't going to go well. Baptism is a declaration that he is king. He is savior. I am not. I am not, but he is. And he's good enough. Because when, listen to this, if, he's the, if, it, if it's a declaration, when it's a declaration of faith and trust in Jesus, it's a surrender to him as savior and king, then you get to storm the gates of hell by the power and the authority of the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember that he ultimately cares about this mission more than any of us. And so if God is for us, then who can be against us? There's a deep joy and a security in this. Will you leverage your life for his kingdom and his glory? This is all simply our response to the sonship that we've received in Christ. Again, it's all about Jesus. He is the bread of life. He is our living water. The invitation is come, 
all who hunger and thirst. Let's pray.